You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Matt Corner. I'm Royful Brown, who is in Canada. And you know what? I completely forgot to do my, co- my coordinates, but I'm in Toronto. I'm in the middle of the biggest city in Canada, right next to where the Blue Jays play. So if you know the coordinates, if you want to go and Google the coordinates of where the Blue Jays play, that's where I am right now. And with me, I am graced to have the most wonderful Claire Asprey. Now, Claire, I'm not going to ask you where you are today because you're always in the same place. So let's move on. <laughs> Go on. Tell us where you are. I'm always in the same place. 52.1 degrees north, 0.5 degrees east, Bedfordshire, UK. You don't even have to look at your script for that anymore, do you? You just know. I just glance. <laughs> Gotcha. Uh, Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, whoop, whoop, you're in the right place. Claire, the next bit is you. That's right. So, yeah, this, uh, we're doing this a bit of a bonus, uh, bonus episode on live on Zoom with some of our best Map Corner listeners. And if you want to join in, uh, our usual slot is the first Saturday of the month. So, Join the Facebook group to get the details of the Zoom link or like somebody who's contacted me this week, send us a message on Twitter or something if you're uh, interested, but you're not on Facebook and we can send you a link. Brilliant. Now we have an audio postcard all the way from Colombia. Sergio's making a little bit of a habit of sending these in, but we thank Sergio for that. Don't forget to review us on Apple iTunes because the more reviews you give us, you know what, the more listeners we'll probably get because we go up those iTunes charts. So we're going to start off by talking to our guest today, uh, who is Matt Douglas from the Educator Podcast, which is actually in multiple things. But one of the things he does in the, in the podcast is... Uh, walking the uh, sites and locations of big historical events. So welcome to the show, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, you're very welcome. And so 
you you're a history and geography buff. Um, Nerd, I would call it. Okay, well, I wasn't going quite quite to know, but yeah, happy to do that. Have so. Uh, which is your first love? Is geography or do they have to be combined? That is such a good question. To me, they're combined. I remember uh, I was in like second grade. This is like probably eight years old. And I drew a giant map of the world on the floor of my bedroom. And that's kind of how it started. I've always loved history. I've always loved geography. To me, maps just, they speak to me for some reason. I don't quite know why, but they always have. So it's very cool to find a community of people as crazy as me. <laughs> well, you listened to the last time where I know you wouldn't, um, where like you, uh, Royfield has an obsession about understanding when a map was produced because he knows historically which countries existed and when. And that sounds like it's like your, your kind of thing too. Yeah. I don't know for some, any kind of map is just something that I like want to look at and study. And every time I see like a map store, I always walk in, I never buy anything. They always walk in, but I've had just over the years, things collected and, you know, my walls are fairly adorned if they're not in the closet waiting to go up someday. So, so you became a history teacher rather than yes. a history teacher? Correct. Yeah. When I was in college, I got a history degree and I suppose if I could, I got a history and an education degree. So it was sort of a, a double degree. If I could have gotten three, I would have added geography on, but that was the odd man out. So after college, I started teaching history. I was a history teacher for, for public schools here in the United States for a few years. And since then, I've gone in a variety of different education fields, in and out of history, sometimes teaching, sometimes not. Now I get to scratch my history and geography itch by doing the, the Walking History podcast for the Educator podcast that I do. So what motivated you to start a Walking History podcast and which location spoke to you? Well, I think that's that's a good question. I think that the the tedium and boredom of sitting in my house for a year of COVID, it gave me a really good reason to get out and like really go and explore some places that I I knew were located near me that I wanted to spend some time really like diving into. And for me as a teacher, as well as somebody who's into history, experiential learning is like so important for me and for the students that I've had over the years. Like I want to teach by showing and living and experiencing as opposed to just reading it from a book. So I live now in Northern Virginia and there's, this is like the center of so much history in the United States. Washington DC is less than an hour away. Most of the civil war battlefields are within a few hours drive. There's a couple of really big revolutionary war battlefields. Um, the battle of Yorktown, for example, I visited about a month or two ago. So I get the chance to go out and, you know, literally walk the places where history happened. And to me, that's like a very special thing. And for me to be able to dive in and learn about the history and then experience it and then share it. It's such a cool, like, combination of things. I get a real kick out of it. And you go ahead, Royfield. No, I was just going to say, tell us the first place that you that you uh, walked and, and, and did a history tour. And, and how did you prep for that? The first place was this tiny little Civil War battlefield about 20 minutes from where I live called the Battle of Balls Bluff. I had never heard of it. I was a history teacher. I'd never even heard of it. But it was this small battlefield, small engagement early in the Civil War where a U.S. senator actually died. Uh, that's the first and I believe only time a sitting U.S. senator or congressman has died on the field of battle. I had heard about it. having I moved to Northern Virginia last year. 
I'd heard about this was there and I went to go see it. I was like, this is really unique. It's very well preserved as are many of the battlefields um, on the Eastern coast, on the East coast of the United States. And I went there and visited it. I was like, this is cool. That kind of gave me the idea for the podcast a little bit too. And I just researched it sort of ad nauseum. I had all my notes and all my descriptions, of what was going on. And then when I visited it, I was really like walking the battlefield with you know, what was happening on during the battle in mind, you know, trying to picture this is where the troops landed from the river. This is how they went up this bluff. This is how they, this is when they found the, the Confederate troops. This is what happened. This is where Edward Baker, the Senator died. And a lot of the battlefields in the United States, especially civil war ones have really, really well preserved, not just the battlefield itself, but the like descriptions and stories. And they have inscriptions all over the place and that kind of thing. And you get to experience it from being there learning that way. And then all the research I'd done before and then afterwards sort of just adds to that and, and adds on top of all the interesting history that's around. So it's interesting what you say about the places being well preserved, because when I think of a kind of battlefield site, I think generally about some sort of random empty field that's now something else. And, you know, so it's interesting right. to see what, what efforts have gone in in different places to preserve those places what what do you think drives that kind of enthusiasm to preserve those places because you know some people get through a war and then want to forget it that's a great question i mean i could probably only speak to the united states in terms of of war but i think there's a big community of historians who the united states doesn't have a very long history you know you compare i've been to europe many times you compare it to europe it's it's night and day you walk into a house in europe it's been around for 400 years you know there's nothing in the united states that old at all basically so I think there's some some element here to wanting to take our most like precious historical events and sites and really restore them. A lot of these battlefields weren't really kept up, though, until the last, I don't know, five, six decades. Um, and what's happened, I think, I guess, is just a lot of money and interest has been put into communities, either communities building them back up or national funding or state or local funding really, really doing that process. And all the ones I've been to, I've been very surprised and impressed with how well kept up these these sites have been. It's really it's really something to see. That so is like most things that the interpretation of history tells us more about the present time than the time that it looks at. Often, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and, and also just the to know that what has happened is is significant. You know, so uh, like. You, you've really made me think with that question, Claire. So the Battle of Bosworth, which ends the War of the Roses, is now a car park in Leicester or a parking lot you know, for, for North Americans. And when they found the bones of Richard III, because they were digging up a car park, and you just think, my God, right, this yeah. is the start of modern Britain, in, in modern England, and but it wasn't kept. But, you know, after that battle happened in, what, 1485, you know, they just got on with their lives. It wasn't a case, well, we need to preserve this so uh, future generations of Tudor children can come along and whatever. And of course, they didn't they just got on with their lives. But we have a much better understanding of, of the past now than we did hundreds of years ago. And stuff. But uh, It's very so- interesting to hear that difference. It really is, because I, I can't imagine that. Like, like, so I'm going to go visit the Battle of Gettysburg in a week or two and, and do an mm. episode on that, which is probably the most famous, definitely the most famous battle of the Civil War potentially of all American history. If that wasn't preserved, I, I, that doesn't, I can't even fathom that, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, but, but, it all, but you know, it, it does really speak to understanding heritage and monuments 
for future generations, which is actually a relatively recent thing, you know. So again, what the last battle in in Britain was going to be Battle of Culloden, uh, like seventeen forty five, and and that is the, and that and that war gives us our national anthem, "God Save the Queen," right. If there's any monument to that battle, I'd be very surprised if it's not just a little plaque. If that, no one's going there to, to go and look at it in terms of heritage. So, so, but this kind of heritage industry kind of starts with the Victorians in that regard, so to speak. You know, but it's interesting. I've never thought about it. So, great question, Claire and Matt. There you go. You can pumped and primed. Look, look what you're getting at. It's making us think, sir. You're making us think. So tell us about starting the podcast, because I think only people that like the sound of their own voices start podcasts. Are you that type of gentleman, Matt? <laughs> Probably a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, why did I start it? Yeah, I mean, I started because I was bored sitting in my house in the middle of COVID, you know? And I wanted a way to do something and connect and enjoy sort of what was around me and also meet with people. Some of the other series I do... I'll interview different people involved in education and sort of people who are doing interesting things in their lives. I've interviewed a Broadway dancer, for example, and a comedian. And then once I started it, I just sort of like, I fell in love a little bit. It is, it is fun to do this kind of thing. It's fun to put yourself out there and put interesting things out in the world. And like, who knows what's going to come back. I'm self-employed. I run like a mentoring business for teens. So I have the time and if I get to do this kind of thing and my, my name's out there more, like who knows what's going to come back. One of the episodes I did, I actually just interviewed the director of a local history museum fairly close to where I live. And that episode is going to be promoted in like the local tourism site, basically. That's cool to like have that opportunity. And who knows where it'll go, but this is just fun right now. And are there other, form, other sort of historical things that you're interested in or obviously wars kings and battles is a sort of type of history that you know very valid makes a difference in the world but there are also other sorts of things around you know just the way people live or how that's preserved or not preserved and i think sometimes we take for granted those things that are around us and we don't think about them historically in the same way i just wondered if you're considering any more kind of everyday type I, I agree. Um, I think a lot of times history tends to gravitate towards the like military history, the quote unquote fun and exciting. But that's not that's not that's only a small slice of history. That's only about half the episodes I've done. I did an episode where I walked the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And if anybody who's listening has ever been to Washington, D.C., the downtown near the downtown, there's this giant national park with all the monuments, Lincoln Memorial, Washington Monument, all these. It's beautiful. And I did a whole episode where I was walking that and explaining the progression and how it got to be where it is. Cause it used to be a marsh, like literally a marsh. And it was slowly dredged and then built up over time to be what it is today. And, you know, that, that kind of history is a lot of fun as well. I did an episode sort of as a companion piece to that one where I did Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech. So the history of the march, the history of why he gave the speech and then the speech itself. And, you know, I like diving into that kind of history just as much as any battle you'll find. Yeah. But I guess if you're surrounded by battlefields, it's an obvious place to start. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I live fairly close to where President Lincoln was assassinated. Um, That is, to me, kind of a place I might want to check out soon. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you could walk any historical site and, you know, post-COVID, no travel restrictions, 
you know, where, where would you hanker to go? You know, I was thinking about that because you had sent me a couple sort of possible questions before we talked here. And I think I would go to, to Normandy and where the D-Day landing was. I think I would want to be in southern England, take a boat across the channel, land at one of those beaches and kind of like walk some of those, just the, the whole area. To me, that would be a really like fascinating experience because as I said before, I'm so enamored by experiential learning and experiential history. And I can't imagine what those people on those boats were like feeling. And then they get to the the beachhead. And then when they, I mean, it just, it's unfathomable to me. So if you're able to get some sense of it, I think that that really brings it to life. It, it makes it a better visceral understanding yes. of exactly. like the lie of the land. Exactly. Yep. Mm. Yeah. I, I've been to Normandy. I I took my my daughter there about seven, seven years ago, and I must admit I couldn't get the sense of the the you know the fear, the trepidation, just you know because it just looks so lovely, you know. But you do see some of the some of the those concrete pillars are still actually there. So it's not as if they whipped them all away. And then there's those pretty, uh, you know, French towns and stuff, but, but yeah. And um, I'm just trying to think where I've actually been to. And I've got a real, <gasps> I always talk about Istanbul in this regard. So if you, people listen to this podcast, Oh, bloody Istanbul again. But like for me, seeing the Hagia Sophia, in Istanbul and the size of it and to think that is 15, 1600 years old. And it's big now. Forget how it would have been big, how big it would have seemed when it was built back in AD 500 or whenever the heck it was built. And those Roman walls, and to know that those are, again, 1700 years old and they're still there. You know, it's interesting. You, you as an American, you talk about, you, you, you know, you, you go, to, go, go to Britain and sort of how there's a house 400 years old. I get excited about going to Istanbul and things are 1,700 years old and they're still there. And I've never, never even been to Egypt where the, the, the pyramids are 3,000 years old, you know. So, and there is something about planting yourself in, in, in a time and a place, isn't it? And you're physically there. And I remember the first time that I was really aware of that, we went on a, a tour of Edinburgh, so I'm about eight, seven, and uh, we were stood on the spot where Mary, Queen of Scots, lover Rizzo was killed. You can't tell a seven-year-old who stood on that spot. Oh, my God. Like, she was ran down my spine. This poor Rizzo had died 600 years ago, and I felt it, you know, and that tour guide was utterly amazing, you know, and he said, here we are in the room where Mary's been Scott's lover. He was killed by the room. Oh, my God. Hairs on the back of my little seven-year-old neck went up. And, you know, and it just brought history to life. Wonderful. I, I had a similar sort of experience at the uh, Mosquito Cordoba, actually. You know, so, so enormous. They built the new cathedral inside it instead of knocking it down um, <laughs> when the uh, Christians took over. But it is the most phenomenal space. And that sense of many people having walked there before is, mm. you know, incredibly powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, Matt, right, see what we're going to do, right? We're going to jump to our Sergio's audio postcard, right? Which, uh, for the sake of people who are actually watching this on uh, on video, on Zoom, of course, is a video postcard. And uh, Sergio's quite, quite the man, quite the man. He's uh, making a habit 
of making a habit of winning the quiz and telling us about his home country of Colombia. The second biggest city in Colombia. Welcome to Medellin. But how do you feed more than two and a half million people and almost four million in the metropolitan area in a valley this lender? Well, you exhaust all of the flatlands around the river and start going up the mountains. Medellin's hard geography has created a very strange metropolis that grows on the mountain skirts, like a wave made out of brick and cement, offering a unique view to the visitor. Located 1,400 meters above sea level, it's called the City of the Eternal Spring because of its perfect temperate climate and flora and fauna. Medellin is home of the only metro system in Colombia, as we wait for the opening of the first line in Bogotá in 2028. The system meanders through the valley, connecting the very diverse north, downtown and south sections of the city. But more interestingly is the existence of the Metro Cable, the first gondola aerial car system uses public transport. It brings passengers from the high places of the surrounding mountains to the two metro lines of the city. This system has incredibly helped the neighborhoods in the hills and has dramatically decreased travel times. A trip from the high points of the city to the downtown could last almost an hour and a half, but now the time is far less than an hour. And believe me, I've done the trip in both means, and the opportunity to rise above traffic and fly your way down the mountain is just simply amazing, helping you to arrive faster to your destination. It surely is a very used system in this city. And we can talk about Medellin without mentioning its distinctive culture. In the past, the city has been synonym of violence and drug cartels with the infamous Pablo Escobar. But that peer is far behind in the city's history and now Medellin shines through its inhabitants, called Paisas, always kind and striving forward. Their accent is the one considered as the Colombian accent in quotes, although it's one of the dozens of accents the country has. The Paisas will offer you some delicious dishes you should surely taste, like the bandeja paisa or the chicharrón de cien patos, or in, in English 100 leg pork rind. The city is also home of several museums, art galleries, parks, natural reserves and lookout points. It is the birthplace of one of the most renowned Colombian painters, Fernando Botero, which has a very peculiar style in his paintings, portraying people full of volume as he describes them, giving us very peculiar art wonders that have made him very popular, not only in the country but also abroad. Be sure to check out his Mona Lisa version. And now, let me give you a glimpse of one of the most beautiful spectacles of not only the city but the whole country, the Medellin Flower Fair. Ten days in August where the city covers itself in all kinds of flowers and farmers go on a parade showing gorgeous arrangements that they carry on their backs. It surely lives up to the city's name as the Eternal Spring. I hope I made you fall in love with this exceptional city as there's a ton of other things this place has to offer but that is up to you to discover and explore. Cheers, I'm folding now my map. Thank you for that, Sergio. Blimey now, I'll tell you what, I want to go to Colombia. There's gondolas. That was great. Absolutely was. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had heard of those, and, but I, the, the, the size and the scale, uh, Sergio, I, I, know, I know you're with us. Um, have you, so you've, you've been in, in one of the gondolas. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, uh, I've been twice to Medellin and uh, both times I've, ri I've ridden those gondolas because I just love them. 
And they are very small. Like you can just feed like six people in each gondola. But um, there are like each minute a gondola arrives. So it's a very fast system. Um, and I just love them. Like you're just above in the sky and you can just see the city below you. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just amazing. And they just opened a new line like a month ago. Have you got any idea as to how many people a day uh, will travel on those? Well, I have no idea, but it, it is a lot of people. Mm. Well, uh, utterly stunning. And uh, I tell you what, I'm going to have to, uh, as soon as COVID's over, I don't know about you, Claire and Matt, but I'm, I'm going to Colombia. Yeah, you've done a blooming good job selling Colombia to us, Sergio. And so where's next? Are you going to do Cali? Well, maybe Cartagena. There you go. Right, smashing. So we expect, if you win, if you win the quiz, we're expecting Cartagena and an audio postcard. But then again, I don't know, Ken McDonald's on his metal. He's wearing his hat. So I don't know. <laughs> he means business this week. He means business. Matt, t- tell, us about your, tell us about the podcast, how it's kind of structured, and who do you think actually listens to it? Because we have a weird and eclectic bunch. We, we've got Madnick Roworth, We've got the debonair Ken McDonald and whatever. And there's nothing to connect them. You know, it's an eclectic bunch of listeners. Who do you think listens to your podcast? I think people who are either interested in history in general or are people who are fairly local who want to actually visit these sites. So the way that I do my walking history is it's a fairly extensive and detailed breakdown of the event. So the first battle of Bull Run or the Battle of Antietam or the National Mall in Washington, D.C. I really, really dive into the history as a, as a sort of amateur historian, former history teacher. I really, really dig into that. And then as I'm describing it, I'm weaving in a lot of what it's actually like to be there. So going to the Battle of Antietam, it's not just on a map. Here's the countryside. Here's the configuration of where the armies would have been. And you can, when you go to a place, you can talk about that differently than if you're just sort of reading from a book. And then at the end, I will always have a segment where I describe what it's like to go there, what to know if you're traveling, visitor information, like parking fees, all that kind of stuff. So I try to make it fun and engaging as like a historical endeavor, but also something that people who might be interested in going there could really get a sense of like, oh, I want to spend an afternoon in Harper's Ferry where John Brown's raid was, or I want to go to Gettysburg for a weekend. You know, that's kind of the idea. And the people who listen, yeah, I mean, anybody who wants to listen, please, please come along. I really like that for the practical section you do at the end. Not that I'm going anywhere right now, but, you know, it's, it's that <laughs> opportunity to... To, it also helps it feel rooted and it's like this is a real place and I've you know been to this real place and this is what it's like but I just wondered like when, when we started doing Map Corner as a podcast uh, one of the very bizarre things about that was that maps are a visual medium and podcasts are an audio medium so I'm, I'm kind of asking myself why a podcast rather than a YouTube channel for example or some other visual mechanism I don't know. I think I like just speaking into a microphone and letting that be it. I, you know, when you when you when you listen to somebody describe something well, and I hope I've done this in my episodes, you really can visualize you, your imagination's at work as opposed to a map up on a screen. You know, so um, one of the examples I like to talk about is when I went to the Battle of Antietam. This is the single bloodiest day in American history. Was don't give out too many numbers. It's in the quiz. 
<laughs> I won't. All right, fair enough. It's uh, the single bloody state in American history, one of the biggest battles of the American Civil War. And you can look at a map and you can sort of say, oh, I think I get it. You know, but until you go there and then feel it, and then as I'm hoping, as I'm describing it, you get a very different sense. So like one of the really, probably the most famous part on that battlefield is called the Sunken Road. Uh, the Sunken Road is this place where thousands of Confederate troops were waiting, basically, for the Union forces to come at them. And almost like a trench. And when the Union forces came at them, they just hit him with everything. And it was a slaughter. And you can read about that in a book and hear about that. And you're okay, but how does that work? Like how, how is it possible that thousands of Union troops didn't see 2000 Confederate forces right in front of them? It's not until you go there and realize, okay, this is very reminiscent of a world war one trench. It's three to five feet deep in almost every place. You know, if a Confederate soldier is standing up, you can really only see their head when you, you can walk the rock. It's very hilly. So you walk kind of a rise until you get to where that sunken road is. It's only when you walk it, do you realize just why things were happening the way that they were? It's almost like the battle of Thermopylae, right? Um, that's a bit more easy to understand than imagine because you can imagine sort of a bottleneck in a canyon and 300, you know, Spartan soldiers defending against 10,000, whatever it was. But it's a little bit more nuanced when you go to places like a battlefield, for example. I do the same kind of thing when I talk about the National Mall in D.C. So if you've never been there, you've seen pictures of the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. But it's hard to get a sense of what it's all like together when you go. And, you know, what I was doing as I was walking it, you know, I'm literally saying, OK, it took about 15 minutes to get from here to here. And here's what you sort of, sort of see on the way. And here's the feeling of it. And here's here's what it's like to see the people around. You know, it's not just a historic site, but there's you're experiencing with other people, typically, even with even in COVID times. So I'm bringing all of that into the description. And I hope what I've done is allowed people to kind of close their eyes and just imagine the history around them, because that's what I do when I go. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And on, on that note, right, the reason why we have uh, Nick Roworth, uh, Ken McDonald, Sarah Spilsby and Sir, Sergio with us is so they can actually ask a question uh, of our guest. Uh Ken, with a with a hat like that, you must have a question ready and primed uh, to go. So you've come dressed. So uh, let's hope you can match your hat with a suitable question. I just didn't feel like combing my hair, uh, but uh, you know, I I live very close to Virginia myself, and I've never visited any of the uh, the battlefields. But one of my favorite things to do when I'm traveling is the cemetery. Uh, which is another way I think of, of experiencing history. I don't know. You live close to Arlington. Yes. Uh, you have you been there? Have you toured there? And also- I have. Yeah, it's been in a few years, but I've been there. And I was, I was actually thinking about doing an episode on that someday. Oh, you haven't yet. Yeah, not an episode yet, but I've been. And uh, about Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. That I don't know much about. Again, I'm still fairly new to Virginia. So what, what, is, what is that cemetery? Well, there are several presidents buried there, including uh, uh, the only president of the Confederacy. His, his grave is there. And, um, oh, God, it's, it's just, it's one of those, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful area overlooking the, uh, the James River. So it, it's, it's a physically lovely location, but also just all those monuments and all the, I think it's another way of exploring history. I but think I guess so. It's not an approach you've taken, really. So- well, I would like to. I would like to do Arlington someday. And you know what's what's really fascinating about going to a place like Arlington National Cemetery is it's not just gravestones, right? They have the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, 
and you can see the, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's, the, there's always a, a guard who's there, right? 24-7, no matter what the weather, rain, sleet, snow, 95 degrees and humid, there's always a soldier there guarding the tomb. And that's like a real experience going to visit. So if I were to do an episode in Arlington National Cemetery, it would be the history of it, which is also fascinating. I mean, this was Robert E. Lee's plantation, basically. This was his home. <laughs> and the union takes it and turns it into a cemetery, which is very fitting. And now it's a cemetery. It's a national cemetery, the most you know famous and hallowed, basically, United States. And then you also get these really interesting places to visit. Like, I believe that JFK is buried there, and he has that eternal flame. So, yeah, it's, it's a different approach to history. You're not experiencing necessarily history that happened there which is sort of what gets me excited. But I know a lot of people love, I mean, it's also the whole haunted tourist side of things where you visit a gravesite and you get to hear all the spooky stories. So. so on the subject of history that happened there, our Sarah Spilsbury is actually a tour guide in a historical location. And I'm sure she may have a question about what makes a good visitor attraction. Sarah? Oh, you put me on the spot there a bit. <laughs> so I'll, I'll come back if I, if I think of something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> modest as always there sarah modest as always um now i'll tell you what we should uh go on to do before we forget because otherwise there'll be fist fisticuffs on, on the podcast we the need we need to do the quiz yes the most yeah. uh prestigious thing that a listener of uh of matt corner can win is the accolade of uh you know the brainiest person on this week's on this month's episode and uh, in your honor matt it's all about walking history famous oh speeches boy. is section one now what was the location of martin luther king jr's i have a dream speech in 1963 was it a atlanta b washington or c chicago again if you're playing along at home uh what was the location of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in 1963? I think we've all seen that scratchy bit of a film or video. Was it A in Atlanta, B in Washington, or C in Chicago? Question number two. Again, famous speeches. What was the location of Emmeline Pankhurst's 1913 Freedom or Death speech? Was it A in Connecticut, B in Epsom, or C in Manchester. All right, so um, one which I think us Brits were able to hazard a guess at. It's a bit of a clue there. A famous speech. What was the location of the uh, of, uh, 1913 Freedom or Death speech? And that was Emmeline Pankhurst. No, question number three. What was the location of Mahatma Gandhi's famous 1942 Quit India speech? Did he say it in Mumbai? Did he say it in London? Or C, did he say it in Delhi? Right, Mahatma Gandhi, middle of the war, and he's telling the British, you need to quit India. Did he say this in Mumbai, B in London, or C in Delhi? I think I know the answer to that. Not quite sure myself. Again, famous speeches. What was the location of Queen Elizabeth I's 15 88 addressed to the troops, which included the line, I have the heart and the stomach of a king and a king. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Of England too. And I must admit, I went to this place last year. All right. Was it, did she say it in the Tower of London? Did she say it at Dover? Or did she say it at Tilbury? All right. Now she's rallying the troops here because the Spanish Armada is uh, coming for the, for, for the fair Isle of England. There's a clue. Did she say it in the Tower of London? B, the White Cliffs of Dover. Or C, did she say it at Tilbury? Question number five, battlefields. And Matt has spoken about battlefields. All right. And if you were paying attention, Claire had to dissuade him from giving the answer for this question. He said, oi, mate, stop. Cease and desist. She gave him a cease and desist order on the podcast. Of the approximately 128,000 troops at the 18, sorry, 62 Battle of Antietam in Maryland, how many died? on one day, A, 5,000, B, 16,000, or was it C, 23,000? So approximately there were 128,000 troops, Union and Confederate, facing each other at the Battle of Antietam in Maryland. How many of those uh, men died in one day? A, 5,000, B, 16,000, or C, 23,000, the most bloodiest day in American history. Question number six, again, battlefields. What is the literal translation of Thermopylae? A narrow pass, which was the site of the Seminole Greco-Persian battle in uh, 480 BC. Is it A, the horseshoe, B, hot gates, or C, high pass? Huh. I'm trying to guess myself here, trying to work, work this out. Now, this is where there were... Th- 3,000 Spartans, apparently, they reckon, defending this pass against half a million Persians. It's never really half a million, but that's the way it's come down to us in history. But it's a bloody lot, right? So 300 bare-chested Spartans, you know, defending Greek civilization against the Persian hordes with King Darius there. And uh, so what is the literal translation of Thermopylae? It's a narrow pass, which was the site of this seminal Greco-Persian battle in 480 BC. 
is the translation the horseshoe, heart gates, or high pass? Think I know the answer. These aren't quite as tricky as before. You have. You've been listening. You've been listening. Right. Uh, These you can kind of do an educated guess at. That's what I was going for. Okay. Well done. Battlefields again. In what UK uh, county would you find the site of the 1485 English Civil War Battle of Bosworth Field? Crumbs. We mentioned that as well, didn't we? I know. Ah. Is it A, in Yorkshire, B, in Hampshire, or C, in Leicestershire? If you are an American and you don't know your English history, this is going to be a bit of a stab in the dark for you, right? But it, this happened in an English county, this battle. Which one? Was it A, Yorkshire, B, Hampshire, or C, Leicestershire? And the last question, again, it's battlefields. Which of the following is not a feature of the 1854 Battle of Baraclava during the Crimean War? A, Charge of the Light Brigade, B, Charge of the Heavy Brigade, C, Charge of the Red Brigade. I see what you did there, Claire. It's very good. It's very good. Right. So this battlefields, which of the following is not, was not a feature of the 1854 Battle of Baraclava, which is where we get Baraclavas from, from that battle. Did you know that? Oh, well, I can believe it because it was not the best climate, was it, to be Incredibly cold. So they, the yeah, they put on their hats and then cut out for their eyes. And that's where we get the expression, the baraclava, the name, the baraclava from, from this battle. Um, and it also gave us France Nightingale and all that. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Is it the charge of the light? Sorry? Modern statistics. And uh, data, data, graph, data visuals. That was... Uh, uh, Florence Nightingale, first first big statistician. And I've got a sneaky feeling that this is the first time that the English forward slash British and the French are ever allied because Emperor Napoleon III is allied with us and we go up against the Russians to stop them from invading the Ottoman Empire. That's the whole reason for the Crimean War. And I, I'm sure that is the first time we're ever allied with the French. We've always been hitting seven bells out of each other for the, for the previous 800 years. Anyway, is it the charge of the light brigade, charge of the heavy brigade, charge of the red brigade? Those are your questions. And I would like to commend Claire for giving us some questions, which I think a reasonable human being of reasonable intelligence might have a decent stab at them because normally, Matt, they're fiendish. <laughs> I listened to a few of the episodes before I came on. I was like, oh, I can do this. This is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I have really tried. I have really tried to make it less fiendish. Yes, we'll see. We will see. Uh, at the end of the show, of course, folks, we will give you the answers. Now, Claire, what you got for us? In the social media roundup this time around, a couple of things on Twitter that I wanted to uh, flag up, which was uh, one was we'd had a um, a tweet from Robert Naked Fingers who was tweeting a very beautiful map of Tokyo. And I thought particularly wanted to be included because obviously we're still in Olympic and Paralympic season at this stage. He'd seen this in the in a shop window in Oxford. And it's a really, really beautiful map. So one to look at on the hashtag 
map corner and i and i posted something there as well which is a lot of fun uh, if you like your map projections and goodness knows we're in the right crowd for people who like their map projections where you can sort of scroll around and see what different map projections do to different parts of the globe. So that's that's quite a nice way to while away some time if you're into your maps. So there's a couple of things I'll pick out from Twitter. Back to the Olympic theme. Uh, one of the most popular Facebook posts in our group in the last little while has been the uh, the. It's not a it's not a map, but it's a chart, and we do we are sort of you know chart aligned, uh, showing the Olympic medals per capita. For different nations showing how San Marino have been absolutely top of the tree. And when I looked at it again today, what I realised was actually they, they won three medals, which gave them an average medals per citizen of around 11,000. But actually, even if they'd only won one medal, they'd still be top of the tree. Um, because even if you tripled that, that's still like better than the second placed uh, nation. So San Marino only has to do pretty much one medal at an Olympics to beat most people out of the park in terms of uh, medals per capita. And uh, of course, uh, in, in honour of Royfield, Jamaica was sixth behind some other Caribbean nations, but they had, uh, you know, but that's because they have a higher population. So they had to, they had to proportionally win more medals to, to bring that average per uh, per citizen down but yeah so that it's nice to sort of look at uh, all the stats from the olympics in slightly different ways and, and cut them in different ways and um especially to see those places where they might not be always top of the tree in terms of the overall medal table but when you look at what they've had to start with in terms of population they do amazingly well so that's just, always just just, just out of interest and it's not me being the son of jamaican immigrants right where, where i'm going with this because it's a serious point Right. And I'm not knocking the uh, athletes from San Marino, but do you know what competitions they won the medals for? I don't. All right. Now, I don't know, and I haven't Googled, right? But I'm guessing it wasn't track and field. Now, I'm not knocking anyone who gets a gold, silver, or bronze in any Olympics, but. There are some sports which are only played by a few countries and by definition are elitist. So if you're going to like win a gold medal for fencing, just as an example, you've dedicated yourself to that sport, right? And it's a sport. I'm not saying it's not, but it's hardly the, you're hardly going into a competition where there are tens of thousands of people have competed in that to get to the Olympics, just saying. Right. And this is coming from somebody who comes from uh, the land of, uh, you know, where there is a Jamaican bobsleigh team. Right. <laughs> so not to devalue anybody's gold medal, but if you've run, if you've won, sorry, a gold medal for the 100 metres dash. God, I'm show, showing my age. I said dash, the 100 metres sprint. Right. <laughs> By definition, that is quantifiably harder than winning a gold for dressage or for even breaststroke. Not knocking those sports at all, but anybody on planet Earth, regardless of income level, GDP of your country can run 100 metres. Not everybody on planet Earth 
can do fencing. So just saying. So when we talk about the amount of gold medals per capita, that should be factored in. Jamaica would win. Anyway, that's the whole point. <laughs> I think you hit a nerve there, Claire. Royfield's got some thoughts about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I take your point. And I think it, well, one of the things that was nice this year was to see how, I mean, Britain do very, you know, comparatively well per capita in, in, the, in the medals. But it was really nice this year to see, you know, your kind of BMX and your skateboard and stuff, as well as, you know, you know horses and rowing, because... You know, there's yeah, it's just a different sort of space to come from, isn't it? And um, it does feel more accessible to more people to develop skills in those areas. So, yeah, I take your point about elitism. I mean, all elite sport is elite, but you know, some some have a higher threshold to entry. Yeah. So he, here we go, right? Um, so I'm just quick Google. Google's wonderful for things like this, right? So they <laughs> won a, sim, a silver medal for shooting point proven there right I've got a bronze also for shooting and that was alexandra prelli and gian marco berti not knocking them i'm sure if you ever wanted some someone to be shot get them to shoot them they're not going to miss right so and then the bronze was in wrestling i personally would say that that bronze for wrestling is harder to get than in shooting because lots of nations kind of wrestle but still I think my point was well made. Jamaica should really be the top of that list. Anyway, moving swiftly on. The other thing I was going to pick up was a recent post on the Facebook page was around how um, a map showing how Edinburgh is actually west of Bristol, which blows people's minds. But it made me think about, do you remember oh, a long time ago, probably about 18 months ago in the podcast, we had the really great section from Mike Pearmain about the... Um, two degrees west about how the central spine of the UK is mm-hmm. uh, positioned across, not across the meridian, but a little bit to the west of there. And that made me like think that maybe it's something to do with that, that, that like why we feel like that. And um, actually uh, we've had a great email in the last couple of weeks from, from Mike Permain when he sent us a little, a little piece on like sports maps going back to the Olympics, maybe, uh, but personal sporting maps. And um, we're, we're hoping that he will send us an audio postcard around that, especially around the, the, the football connections of his neighbourhood of Birmingham, which I'm sure you'll uh, be keen to hear, Royfield. And, you know, there are lots of people who have, beyond the Olympics, you know, very strong sort of sense of maps as part of sports and, mm. uh, you know, neighbourhoods and, and sort of, local kind of loyalties around football or other sports teams. And, and the other example Mike gave us was around the Tour de France and obviously routes for those big sort of uh, cycling events. Again, they're understood on a map because they, they, they cover a lot of, lot of space. So, yeah, some, there's some good map content coming, I think, around uh, sports Ooh. and routes. I had a big conversation just on that. Last Saturday, uh, a friend of mine in America found himself looking at a map of the Bundesliga clubs. So that's the German uh, football league. Not going to call it soccer, it's football. German football league and where those teams are. And he said, they're all in the former Western Germany, apart from a couple over in the East. Why is that? 
I did not bore him solid with uh, the reunification <laughs> of Germany and the economic disparity and how it is played out through its football clubs and stuff. But, it, but it's uh, utterly fascinating. You know, Germany's been reunited for 30 years. But still, if you look at a map of the Premier League where its football teams play, the vast majority is still in the Western half because the Eastern half just isn't as economically as strong. And, and just uh, and another thing about maps and perceptions so the, the southernmost tip of Canada, let's say that's Niagara Falls, is further south than, no, than the very north of California, which is something which is kind of like you go, what? Because we always think of Canada as being so far north and, and, and so cold. But actually, the border of northern California and the state of Oregon is further north in terms of latitude than actually the most southern bit of Canada which again kind of like blows your mind and stuff. You go, oh, blow what, blows me, what blows me away is that from where I live, New York City-ish area, East Coast, Washington, D.C., you go due east, you hit Portugal and Spain. Yeah. And if you're in the mm. U.K., where all you guys are, you go due west, you're like northern Canada. And it just, that, that blew my mind when I finally saw that on a map. And that's just the Gulf Stream, right? Giving yes. guys all that warm yeah, yeah. water we, and we, fresh we've air had a- and stuff. We had a great map on that where you sort of there's a thing where the tracks across for all the sort of coastal cities. What's the equivalent on the other side of the Atlantic? Right. And yeah, absolutely. Because of because of the climate, you think that mm. you know all of Europe would be much further south compared to where it is on the um, on the, the American equivalent. But yeah, absolutely. That's why that's the difference the Gulf Stream makes. That's why it's not kind of permanently icy across the whole of the UK, I guess. Yeah. True that. Now, Claire, what should we do next? Should we do uh, quiz results? Or, we are we, are we going to do? We're going to do that, All right? We're going to do the quiz results. All right, because right, it's the it's the big standoff now between Ken McDonald, Nick Rowworth, Sarah Spilsbury, and Sergio. Who will take the crown? This and Matt, time? if he's been taking part. Oh, oh yeah, and Matt's just down. We'll see what happens. Right, cool. I'm super confident. Right. So uh, we're going to put you in the hot seat here, Matt. First off, if you get the so first lot wrong. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, right. this is, so this is Washington, D.C. You said you give me the answer. Yeah, yeah, but I've got to queue it up with a question. Okay, okay, okay. Question number one. Got me all excited. Famous speeches. What was the location of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in 1963? Was it A, Atlanta, B, Washington, C, Chicago. And the answer is, Matt? B, Washington on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. There's a little plaque there where he stood, where his podium was. Absolutely. More walking history, famous speeches. What was the location of Emmeline Pankhurst's 1913 Freedom or Death speech? Matt? No, Matt didn't do a podcast about this one. I've gone off piece, though. Okay. I can give my guesses. That's fine. Yeah, you go ahead. Give us your guess. I'm going to go with Epsom. No, I put that in there as a bit of a kind of bluff. Red herring. That's, yeah, that's um, that's where Emily Davis, Emily Wilding Davison fell under the horse. Threw, well, threw herself under, threw herself under the, the horse, king's horse. I, yeah. yeah. So the actual answer of Emily Pankhurst's location was actually A, Connecticut. She was in America giving speeches mm. as part of the kind of UK suffragette course. Well... You know what? Well done. Because I saw Epsom and I went, ah, it must be Epsom then. Well done. Well done. Question number three, famous speeches. What was the location of Mahatma Gandhi's famous 1942, you better quit India speech, Britain? Uh, Was it A, Mumbai, B, in London, or C, in Delhi? Matt? 
Wouldn't give us an answer. Oh Don't know. I guess Delhi. Yeah, I would have said Delhi as well as a guess because it was the capital of the Raj. Uh, and the answer is, Claire? A, Mumbai. Good Or grief. Bombay, as it was then. Good grief. Right. You, Matt, you're not doing very well. No. Wow. Again, <laughs> <laughs> okay. famous speeches. This I do know. What was the location of Queen Victoria's Queen Elizabeth I, sorry, 19, 19, 1588 address to the troops, which included the line, I have the heart and the stomach of a king and a king of England too, which is a line which is on the start of the Things That Made England podcast. Just saying. Yeah. Well, I thought it was a good podcast crossover for one of well the Royfield Brown podcasts. Like, like, like you work here, Claire. Did she say this in the Tower of London? Hmm. Did she say this at Dover? Hmm. Or did she say this at Tilbury? What do you reckon the answer is, Matt? I took a little bit of your lead because I know that Dover is on the coast. So that was my guess. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Claire, the answer is? Tilbury. Tilbury. Yep. You can go to Tilbury and you can also go to... um, the, it's a, the Thames Estuary, and you can go to the Thames Estuary, and there are these uh, beacon beacons which are still there, commemorative, saying this was lit. Because when they saw the Spanish Armada, then everybody would light a beacon all the way in the line to London to say, you know, the Spanish are actually here. Tilbury, famous speech at Tilbury. Battlefields, I think it might be on uh, firmer ground here now, Matt. Um, Hopefully. Of the approximately 128,000 troops at the bat at the nine, I keep saying 19, 1862 Battle of Antietam in Maryland, how many died in one day? Was it A, 5,000, B, 16,000, or C, 23,000? Matt, the answer is? Now, there's a story here. I put A. Was that the correct answer? Well, I had 23,000. So, right. So, there's a really, there's a lot of back and forth on this because. The man who died on the day was about 5,000. There were tens of thousands more casualties, but then the official numbers, because so many people died in the weeks after the battle, the official numbers are like all over the place. Oh, so right, we'll give you, you points for A and points for C. If, yeah, if you look on different sites and different sort of like reckonings of the casualty rates versus deaths, you'll get all different answers. Wow. Oh, well, that's helpful. I see. It helps to have someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> and the other thing is, because I know we, we talked about the Revolutionary War very briefly with your chat uh, with us, but there's the Civil War deaths dwarf anything in the Revolutionary yeah. War. Right. Like, if you had 5,000 troops at a Revolutionary War, uh, battle that's a massive battle and that's and that's Correct. if let alone casualties you know a lot of those battles were literally like 1200 men against 1200 men you know the tiny engagements compared to what happened in the american civil war what is a literal translation of thermopylae uh, a narrow pass which was the site of the seminal greco persian battle in 480 bc I'm, uh, is it A, a horseshoe, B, hot gates, or C, high pass? Now, it's either hot gates or it can't be hot gates. It must be high pass. That's what I'm guessing. What do you reckon, Matt? Before that was Claire my guess me. as well. Yeah. Claire? Hot gates. Oh, with your instinct because thermo, like. Uh, and, yes. Like, it should be Look. obvious. Like, uh, you know, any Greek, like. You know, what's a thermostat? It's a thing for heat. 
Wow. Thermometer. It's a thing for heat. Oh, that's and good. Now you see. How did they know there was going to be a battle there? They name it Hot Gates. That's like a battle feel. That's like the name of the battle. You have to let you know. <laughs> How did they know? Maybe some springs or something, I think. Um, thermal funny. springs. That's so funny. You see, these are really good this month. Asprey, you need to keep this up because there's just about meat on them, their bones for you to to kind of work stuff out. And then you've done well with your red herrings. Keep this up in future. Well done. Even though I've done dreadfully, Matt, you've done really badly as well. I'm very poorly. Correct. But I, 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 you know, but my my money's on Ken McDonald again. Then again, I don't know. Sarah Spilsbury seems to have a certain quiet calm about her. Like she's nailed this one. She just keep it, keep it underneath her hat if she's wearing one. Right now, question number seven: Battlefields again. In what UK county would you find the site of the 1485 English Civil War? Battle of Bosworth Field. Matt? You guys are just being mean. So I chose A, Yorkshire. That is most definitely wrong. Um, <laughs> like, stunningly wrong. Though, to be oh, fair to you, me. to be fair... See, I'm on the other side end, of the pond. This is not anything a, we've ever learned. But you asked... Uh, well, we gave you some, you know, American Civil War questions, that was you know, nice. to be fair. Yeah. right? Now, Ken McDonald's... Now, you are uh, an American, I, I do believe, sir, in America land right now. Could you hazard a guess? Oh, I've been, I, well, I've, I've been to Leicester to, to visit the, uh, the great or the site of the, 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 the reinterment. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, and I've been to the museum there in Leicester. Um, so the answer so, is Hampshire then. Is that Hampshire? <laughs> <laughs> so no, very... Leicestershire doesn't get a lot of tourism, I suspect, but I, I had a, a great time in, in Leicester. So, yes, it's C. It's Leicestershire. Yeah. It is. And to be fair to Claire, there's a potential red herring here because it's the end of the War of the Roses, which is uh, Lancashire versus Yorkshire, even though Henry is a Tudor who wins. So if you had said Yorkshire being an American, it's a bit of, ah, it's an educated guess. It'd be wrong. But it'd be a good educated guess. But you still got it wrong, though, Matt. This is a poor show. Poor show. I can probably say, without going back over the roles of who's done what in terms of answering quiz questions when being a guest on the show, but I don't think anyone's done as badly as you. Just say. You're being a bit harsh here because when we've done other quizzes based on people's content, mm-hmm. this time I only took one battle and one speech from Matt's content. And the rest yeah, those are the ones I got right. Claire, it's very similar to the Olympic medals, right? A medal's a medal's a medal, right? And then per capita. I like Claire a lot better today. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. Uh, again, it's battlefields. I think this is a little bit kind of British heavy, but uh, if you're British, you absolutely know the answer to this. Uh, battlefields, which of the following is not, was not a feature of the 1854 Battle of Baraklav during the Crimean War? A, the charge of the Light Brigade, B, the charge of the Heavy Brigade, or C, the charge of the Red Brigade? Matt, do you know the answer? A. Why'd you say A? I don't know. That, that's the one that only rings a bell. This is, this is not at all my, uh, my purview. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sergio, because I think anyone who's British is going to know this. Sergio, what do you reckon? What do you reckon the answer is, Sergio? Unmute yourself. I have no idea. I'll say 
But you think the live brigade was a thing, do you? No, this is something which one was not in the Crimean War. So, to be fair, so we're oh, well, you know, I don't know the answer then. I don't know the answer. Well, yeah, oh, yes, I do. Yes, yes, I do. Yes, I do. No, yes, I do. I, I read the question three times. I didn't get the sense of the question, <laughs> right? But now you've pointed out to me. Hmm. I, I think I, I still think I, I have the answer. Okay. Then. So, what do you reckon, Royfield? Well. If there's a light brigade, because it was the charge of the light brigade, which was the ridiculous the mowing down, right? So if there was a light brigade, there must have been a heavy one. So the answer must be the red brigade. You're right. That's right. There was a heavy brigade and there was a light brigade, but there was no red brigade. Um, because they were 1970 brigade, terrorists, the weren't they? Well, <laughs> the, the light brigade was the subject of all the, you know, the poetry and the art and you know, mm. terrible stories. Mm. And they were, and it was utterly a forlorn, doomed charge against this exposed field. Field and the Russians just mowed them down, and they just kept on going because they were the aristocracy and incredibly brave. And it was just utterly pointless, uh, a, a ridiculous charge. And the Red Brigades were 1970s terrorists. So, so there you go. So now it's a moment of reckoning. We all know that Matt has done really badly on this, but so we're not going to embarrass him anymore. But I'm going on to gallery view, right? So who got them all correct? Unmute yourself and go, woohoo. All right. Who only got one wrong? Hmm. Interesting. Tense. Gosh, I can feel the tension. Who got Three wrong. Me, oh. I have. You have uh, two wrong. I, I have. Oh, not? Sarah, I did, didn't I? Oh, Sarah, 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 Sarah Spilsbury. Well, six out of eight. Well done, Sarah. I got six. Well done, Rick. There you go. Well done. Well done. Gosh. Do I get your endorsement for not being quite so fiendish? <laughs> well, I worked out the Thermopylae one. <laughs> <laughs> you Brits are all working together today. Oh, well, uh, yeah. Seriously. Well, Nick and, and Sarah, I'm going to award the honor, the accolade of who's going to do next month's audio postcard to Nick Roworth. Because, Sarah, right, you, you're Smethic, you're still basking in the glow of that. It's a it was only, it was only about two or three months ago. Nick hasn't been called upon for quite some time. So, Nick, right, I'll be expecting a tip-top audio postcard from you, sir. All right? Right. <laughs> Great. Any idea where you're going to do, Nick? I thought I might do the village where I was brought up, which is Bookham in Surrey. Sounds lovely. Sounds lovely. <laughs> Any anything famous happened there in the past? Any bloody battles or any goings on? No bloody battles, but uh, well, down my road, Jane Austen lived near there. There you go. That that works. Wow. That works. Well done. You can claim Jane Austen. Well done, sir. I'm gonna look forward to that. Right, Sarah Spills. But I, I, I hope you're not too disappointed, Sarah. But if you if I had pointed the fickle finger of fate at you, where would you have chosen? You'd have had more about Joseph Priestley like you did last month. I'd have taken your own hands with. <laughs> Nick, 
<laughs> I'm feeling I've picked the wrong person. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, right, Claire. Oh, are we just about done? Yeah, let me give you have... a map fact. Oh, map facts. We love a map fact. Go yeah. on. Yeah, and actually, this one I have to say, I, I, I picked this up this week from the um, Retrospect podcast uh, because it came up this week that it was about 95 years ago that the first televised weather map was shown and that's really early it's like the same year as television was demonstrated so it was not like a mass audience it was literally sent from the national aeronautical association in arlington to the national oceanic and atmospheric um, administration in washington and it was a map that was shown from one location to another location. But, um, yeah, the subject of weather maps, we'll have to come back to that at some point, the subject of weather maps, because there's some interesting stuff there. And it's really, when you start digging into it, um, I was really interested to see some of the very earliest TV weather presenters who had a map and then sort of drew over it in pen or charcoal and stuff. I mean, I was, I was very much brought up in the era of the, era of the magnetic cloud, you know, where they used to sort of throw them onto the, onto the magnetic board before the computer graphics took over. But yeah, the, I love the idea of a weather presenter literally drawing onto a map what the, uh, what the weather report would be. Um, I think we should you know, go back to that. It's somewhere between weather and Pictionary, isn't it? And I think that's, uh, yeah, there's, there's space in our lives for that. So, um, yeah, but the, the first ever televised weather map was 95 years ago on the 18th of August, 1926. Wow. It's crazy when you, when you think that TV's literally... We barely had television now. and they were already yeah. using it for maps. Wow. There you go, folks. What a rip-roaring, barnstorming episode of uh, Map Corner you've had. Uh, you had a wonderful guest who was terrible at the quiz. You've had... Oh. Uh, <laughs> Come on, you I were. You were edit all this out, <laughs> I haven't even heard of half the. You, <laughs> Listen, I said the, I said the guest was wonderful. Yes, that was very nice. That is true. You know, I, I quite enjoyed his company. It's just you know, he's just not very good at quizzes. That's. I all. think you. I think you. I think your British history as you grow up and learn, you're learning very different things than us Americans, and you know, I think that we have the better side of it. So, well, I'll tell you what, folks. What you have missed though is Ken McDonald's hat. So I, I, I beg you, I implore you to join our Facebook group because that is the that's where you get the links for the Zoom. So you don't just like you don't have to just hear the podcast. You can see it. And you get Ken McDonald's hat. You get Sarah Spilsbury's living room. You get Nick Roworth's pate, and behind his pate, you get his map, and you get the voice of Sergio. Right. You can kind of get on the podcast too, to be fair, <laughs> right? But but yeah, you get the immediacy of Sergio if you join our Facebook group. Then you get the links. But on that note, Claire, I, you know I'm I'm puffed. I'm I'm I, 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 my excitement has has never my level of excitement has never been so high. I'm going to need to lie down after this podcast. I don't know about you. So shall we fold up our maps, Claire? Yeah, let's fold up our map. Smashing. There you go, folks. Uh, that's Map Corner. And and uh, just before we go, uh, Matt, what's the name of your podcast again? Just let people know. It's called The Educator Podcast. You can find it on any podcast site as well as at theeducatorpodcast.com. And the series that we've talked about is Walking History. I did two others, one called Perspectives and one called How To. Mm. Well, I'm just letting you know, my my diary for going on people's podcasts is pretty empty right now. How's your diary do, doing, Claire? You booked up a whole load of podcasts? 
no, not so much. Oh, okay. Oh, just yeah. I mean, I'm free too. All right. On that note, folks, there is the end of uh, Map Corner. I'm definitely folding up my map. Matt, you're you're a great sport. Thanks for that, pal. <laughs> and thank you, everyone. You're very well with being ripped. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.